Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. What a week. It has been humbling to see you say yes to supporting the work we're doing here on Relevant Radio. You're listening to Trending. I'm Timory, and I am so grateful if you've donated to support the work we're doing every penny we are so grateful for we barely reached our goal over the last hour we needed three million dollars just to continue to cover basic operating expenses and praise the lord because of you we have just over the last few minutes michael elizabeth josephina emily and many others stepped forward and said yes to supporting relevant radio we had a large gift from anonymous donor in lake forest california give five thousand one hundred and twenty three dollars thank you to all of you who supported us uh, it's always one of those moments i think during pledge week there's a little bit of fear for some of us that okay we have a lot to fundraise and we pray that we don't get in the way with the way we ask who we ask and we know god always provides but goodness gracious this kind of took us to the last moment here of needing to reach that funding. If you haven't already donated, it's not too late. You can donate now by giving us a call. The number is 1-877-291-0123. I'll say that one more time, nice and slow. 1-877-291-0123. And you can donate online at relevantradio.com. It's safe, secure, tax deductible. And let's kick off this hour. We're going to pray together, and I want to let you know what's coming up in the hour ahead. Dr. Susan Caldwell will join me. She is a women's specialist, a NAPRO physician, addressing women's health issues, especially concerning fertility and infertility. And these topics are so important that we are ready to address um, the crises women are experiencing, even if it's day-to-day medical issues, because I think that this challenge is so significant for many women. Many women are being told to be put on a hormonal birth control that's just a one-size-fits-all fake fix. It's like a Band-Aid. And women's bodies are really suffering in today's day and age with the rise in infertility, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So we're going to talk about that here in just a moment with Dr. Susan Caldwell. And I think that it's really fascinating as we talk about these things, because if you have a question, we're going to break it down, give you a medical data, also a Catholic take on the issue. So if you have a question today, numbers one 914 We were actually able to meet our need this week for the funds that were really just needed for basic operating expenses, $3 million. So we've done it. You supported us. Thank you. Let's kick off this hour praying for an end to abortion in the United States and for our needs to be met here in Thanksgiving, that our needs have been met, but also praying, Lord, we have six radio stations that we would like to buy still. So 
if we're going to continue to grow the work of bringing Christ to the world through the media, then we need you to step forward and give and help us go beyond those basic operating costs. So again, one 914 Okay, let's pray without further ado because we need Our Lady's intercession for this hour for all of those uh, who have been hurt by abortion, all those who have been involved in abortion, praying for an end to abortion in the United States, and in thanksgiving for your generosity supporting us this week during our Pledge Week. In the name of the Father of the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll pray the memorare together. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word Incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. And just a special prayer of gratitude for all of our mothers, for all the women who are mothers, for all the role models, uh, perhaps who have filled that maternal role if your mom has not been present in your life. We pray in thanksgiving for them and for their yes to life, their generosity and love toward us. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Joining me today on Trending is Dr. Susan Caldwell. Dr. Susan Caldwell is a NAPRA physician. She has an incredible story. She had a reversion back to the Catholic faith after being away uh, for a time and also has children uh, via in vitro fertilization. She shared her story here on Trending before, which we're not going to unpack today, but she has a sound experience of struggling with fertility, having been through the horrible experience of in vitro fertilization. We'll post a link on social media to her story because it's a really important topic uh, that we understand the medical fallout, the interpersonal fallout. And she's an expert now in helping women with fertility and infertility, women's health issues that deserve more than just being told, here's hormonal birth control. So if you have a question today, the number is 1-888-914-9149. Okay, Dr. Caldwell, I'm so excited to have you back with us today. Welcome. Thrilled, Timory. Thank you so much. And happy Mother's Day to you. Thank you, Mother's Day as well. <laughs> yeah. We have so many questions that have been flooding in since the last time you were on. And even just since I let people know, hey, Dr. Walt Caldwell's coming on today, many more have come in. I want to start with touching on the topic of hormonal birth control and actually specifically talking about IUDs today. Many women over the last, really, I would say 10 years, uh, more have turned to IUDs, preferring this over hormonal birth control, preferring this as an implant. We know that IUDs, a copper IUD, was taken off the market for some years and then was brought back onto the market, both in the copper form as well as in the plastic form. Uh, but I found it really interesting because a listener here trending uh, over the last handful of years came back into the church, had her IUD removed, and was really working on not being sexually active. And then she met someone who said he would stay committed to her, that if she got pregnant, he would stay there, and she hoped to get pregnant, engaged in the marital act outside of marriage, and lo and behold, she didn't. Now, she's kind of piecing back together those wounds of a broken heart after ending the relationship and still not having a baby and wanting one. She chose to have an IUD put back in. She's asking for prayer, so pre please pray for this young 28-year-old woman. But Dr. Caldwell, I want to throw some of the things that she mentioned to me in her recent email your way. Mm -hmm. She said the medical doctor told her that an IUD does not stop ovulation or harm fertility, 
And she said, and this is what she claims, it's not what I'm claiming, she said, studies show women on birth control select mates with better income and other criteria other than just who's hot. She said, I feel like I was misinformed. My IUD is unused, so to speak, via abstinence. But in the future, unless I experience a baby, I'll insist that the other person use a condom. She goes on and on. So basically, she's receiving this argument, Dr. Caldwell, that an mm -hmm. IUD doesn't stop ovulation, doesn't harm fertility, and she also made the claim that birth control uh, leads you to a mate that would have a better income and criteria, which let's talk about the IUD first and then come back to the contraception side of it. I would love mm -hmm. your medical opinion on this. Yes. So let's just clarify some terms. First of all, um, there are two, just like you said, basic types of IUDs. Um, the one that you mentioned was the copper IUD. The way this one works is it doesn't affect hormones at all. Instead, the copper is an irritant inside the womb that makes the womb a inhospitable to life. So it just creates a sterile environment in the womb. And then the other way it works is it uh, causes the cervical mucus to be very thick so that it will not allow the sperm to pass through. So those are the two ways. So the copper IUD does not stop ovulation, um, nor does it disrupt long-term fertility in the sense of it being, uh, so, when she when she said in her email quote unquote harm fertility it can be a little confusing um the way that the copper iud harms fertility in the short term is through the ways i told you um through through the the, the making the womb inhospitable to life and also avoiding um the the sperm cannot get to the egg so that's the way it it harms fertility in the short term while the woman is using it now you know all IUDs can harm fertility long term. Um, in the in fact that, that you just have a foreign body in your body, those foreign bodies can move. They can they can actually go puncture the uterus. People have had to have a hysterectomy because this this device has hurt them in that way. So I'm just kind of using this blanket statement. But the copper IUD, once you remove it, because it doesn't uh, affect ovulation, it doesn't prevent future infertility because of the way the most hormones do in that they suppress ovulation. So moving on to the hormonal, IV, did, did you have a question? Can I jump in real quick to ask yes. a question there? So the yes. copper IUD, I've heard from a lot of my peers over the years who have had this uh, put in and they're just astounded that it's still on the market. We could talk about many reasons, but I've also heard one of the causes for long-term infertility is because of scar tissue from the copper mm -hmm. IUD. I know of women mm -hmm. who, uh, one woman in particular, a friend of mine, who had her uterus perforated. So there's been yes. damage from, as you mentioned, a foreign object being put into a woman's body. And this is yes. why it was taken off the market for a long time, never to be brought back on. And then somehow years later, the copper mm. IUD is available after it's rendered woman, women permanently infertile right. by its presence inside the womb. Right. Right. It's terrible. So I just think IUDs are terrible um, for a lot of reasons. But for, so for many doctors, you know, we, we could do a whole show on this, but there's so much, right. this, there's a, there's blinders on. So I've heard many uh, doctors who are anti-hormone, okay, be proponents of this copper IUD because I guess it's the lesser of the evils. 
because it doesn't have hormones. So there are many, you know, doctors, professional, medical professionals who just don't see the beauty and the goodness of, you know, uh, couples use, you know, the, the, the marital embrace and what God has kind of shown us is the beauty of it. And what the church has shown us is the beauty. And so if we refuse to see fertility as a good and sex as a good um, in, in that sense, then somehow we have we're, st- we're kind of stuck. We've got to we've got to kind of hold on to our 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 contraception, <laughs> and that IUD, copper IUD tends to be in in that in, in that camp, the lesser of the evils, unfortunately. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And not to mention, I don't know if you mentioned this, Doctor Caldwell, but a copper IUD can also cause an early abortion by preventing implantation as well. Correct. Right. Right, because it makes the u- the uterine lining or the uterus, the inside of the uterus, very toxic. So you could mm-hmm. potentially have uh, a, for a, a conception, but then, uh, you know, implantation it would be very difficult in that environment with an IUD. But, you know, I guess it could happen. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the plastic version of the mm-hmm. IUD as well now. Yes. So that goes by many names, but uh, they're hormonal IUDs. And to tell you the truth, unfortunately, mm-hmm. most of the women that I talk to who have IUDs really don't know the difference. They don't even, many of them right. couldn't, can't tell me whether they have the copper or the hormonal, um, which is a shame. But um, the hormonal IUD, because it does involve hormones, it does um, work to stop ovulation. Well, that's the... the kind of one of its the ideas um, and also would make the uterus toxic to implantation um, and also would kind of prevent sperm from getting in because it makes um, the cervical mucus thick. So those three um, reasons, the hormonal um, IUD, that's how they how it works. But, but they, those can cause the woman's um, HPO axis, which we call the the brain and the ovarian connection kind of shuts down communication between those glands, those organs. So for women who have that removed, many women have trouble um, becoming fertile and ovulating in a healthy way later, similar to the birth control pill itself. Now, and we are talking about, you know, the need to rebalance hormones because at this point you've supplemented and put hormones in your body to prevent the natural process. So now Mm -hmm. the body needing to rebalance afterward, we're talking about everything from the fact that a plastic foreign objects in your body, so that can cause infertility by scar tissue. And in addition to the fact that it's a hormonal IUD as well, which leads to imbalance. And as we know with the hormonal crisis, so many women are going through today, who are we to assume that this fertility is suddenly just going to be fixed overnight just like that? I know so many people, as you do as well in your practice itself, who are struggling to rebalance their fertility after use Mm -hmm. of hormonal birth control, a copper IUD, plastic IUD, and you know, one thing I was even thinking about, Dr. Caldwell, with regard to the copper IUD, you mentioned the HPO access, which is the brain's reaction to taking hormonal birth control. Could that HPO access that shuts down the communication of the brain for the ovaries to ovulate also be shut down just by the fact that the copper IUD is present and therefore a foreign body and dangerous? And so the brain is saying, hey, this isn't a good time to ovulate. That's a good question. It's it's not supposed to affect the HPO axis, though there are women who 
can get to copper toxicity. You know, in other words, their body is very sensitive to that amount of copper in their body, which could make them sick from from just that. And I'm sure mm. there are many, many symptoms of that. I'm not a I'm not a you know a specialist in um, heavy metal toxicity, um, but some women are very sensitive, just genetically, you know, and they mm -hmm. and it can make them sick. Right. So I, could, I would imagine that would also cause them to not ovulate. But but again, I'm, I don't know all the, right. the details behind that. I can't remember if I was high in copper, but I was extremely high in mercury when I did my blood work mm -hmm. and extremely high in mercury, which was part of what was contributing to my Hashimoto's disease. So when we talk mm -hmm. about toxicity of something such as copper, and we're talking about the fact that this can literally cause autoimmune disorders, which is a result, right, of having things such as a mm -hmm. copper IUD in your body, which yes. then can lead to infertility as well, such as Hashimoto's, PCOS, and all these other things that are being triggered. Yes, and then the other thing that... I'm just remembering um, that we really need to mention is that, you know, these women have this foreign body in their uterus and then they have these strings that go out of the cervix into the vagina. So if they're having intercourse and get exposed to a sexually transmitted disease, like gonorrhea, chlamydia, for example, that disease, that bacteria mm. has access right it, it's almost like a you know an elevator directly to the womb right mm -hmm. and then that gives it access directly to the tubes and and many women don't know they have those infections and so that can cause right. permanent scarring to the tubes and mm -hmm. then again like, like a long-standing hostile infectious environment inside the uterus that would really cause problems if she was trying to get pregnant later. So it's just bad news. It's just bad news. The right, and these are I things think. that, right, and these are things that can cause a, a miscarriage. These are things that can cause a tubal pregnancy, which is life-threatening for a yeah. woman. Uh, these are really important topics that no one's talking about. And just to be clear, when you're talking about strings from the IUD hanging lower down through the reproductive tract, you just, as you said, you said it gives an elevator up into the rest of the reproductive tract. You're literally drawing these sexually transmitted diseases that women are exposed to up through the reproductive tract, up into the womb. And I can share with you a story of one woman who had HPV that I knew working in the crisis pregnancy center. She came in and her, praise God, she chose life for her baby. She didn't have an abortion. And she came in a couple weeks after the baby was born. And she asked the counselors, is it normal for my baby not to cry? And counselors are like, no, babies usually cry. Why? And she said, well, my baby isn't crying. I told the doctor. And the doctor just said, honey, you have a really good baby. Don't worry. Go home. You're lucky. Well, mm. immediately the counselors at the crisis pregnancy center said, no, I think something's wrong. The baby doesn't make any sound. No. The baby didn't make any sound. Lo and behold, the baby had contracted HPV from the mom who didn't know she had it and had mm. massive tumors in his throat that were preventing him from making any noises. Now, oh. he had to go in every couple months, Dr. Caldwell, to have these tumors removed. By the grace of God, truly a lot of prayer, miraculously, they stopped growing. I thank God it was truly a miracle of prayer because this baby was destined to have repeated surgeries on his throat, but he re received mm -hmm. it from the mother's reproductive tract. And yeah. this is a perfect example of how that could have happened. Yeah, exactly. It's really, it's really terrible. But you know, I'm just hearing all this. I'm, you know, we just don't, we don't want to be fear mongering at all, but, but we do need to be aware that our choices have consequences. And, you know, it's just the, the choice to have sex um, is really important choice. 
it can have serious consequences for women and men, but especially for women. So we just need to be really smart about this choice. If you have a question for Dr. Caldwell, the number is 1-888-914-9149. So many questions are coming in. I do want to briefly touch, though, on this one comment that this woman made. Uh, she said she was also told, based on studies, that women mm. on birth control select mates which are have better income and other criteria than just who's hot to them. Uh, can you dive into dispelling yeah. this in the connection <laughs> to pheromones here? Yes. Okay. So there's actually a little bit of truth here. Um, it's just a little incomplete. So I would recommend um, that people, th this is kind of spelled out a little bit by Dr. Sarah Hill in her book, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control. Um, she's a very secular doctor, but um, she's not really a fan of birth control. And she kind of dives into this in her book. And you could probably hear her talking about this on different podcasts and things like that. But Based on uh, studies that have been done and are continuing to go to be done, women on birth control have much less um, estrogen. So in the middle of the cycle, estrogen rises. And when estrogen's high, women tend to be fertile during that middle of the cycle. And they tend to be attracted to men naturally cycling. These are naturally cycling women who have more testosterone um, and this this makes them look different. They have different, you know, jaw lines. Um, they have a different smell. So women are very. They notice they're they're kind of naturally attracted to women men. Sorry, who have more testosterone um, driven features and f f smell because women have women and men both have pheromones that that help us on a very biological basis be attracted to another person, especially around our fertile window. So women who are on birth control, however, do not get this estrogen spike, okay? So, so the women who choose mates when they're on birth control tend to choose men who are less genetically compatible and less hormonally or you know, biologically compatible. So they, those women, mm -hmm. instead of you know, choosing men based on kind of this very... Uh, gosh, primitive, biological kind of compatibility that, that, our, that our bodies kind of depend on, instead choose men who might be better um, kind of providers or some other mm -hmm. kind of in, intelligent, like we use our, our brains to kind of, you know, kind of compute who would be a good mate instead of something that our body naturally tells us he would be a good mate. Um, and so it's, it's funny that um, those, those, those connections made when a woman's on birth control are less likely to, in the long run, play out in a healthy way. Like those, those people might not be co as compatible when the woman's off her birth control. It's very complex, honestly, to, to learn about. Right. So, yeah. And there's so many studies on this topic as well that show that from multiple perspectives, women are choosing different men when they're on birth yes. control. And I know some of the other studies include the fact that when you're pre when you're on birth control, your body's basically functioning in a state of pseudo-pregnancy, so fake yes. pregnancy, trying to trick the brain into thinking yes. it's pregnant. And when we are pregnant as women, we naturally tend to desire to be closer to our family members mm -hmm. because it's more so what's safe and what's comfortable. And so when a woman's on birth control, you mentioned earlier that women are not looking for um, 
complementarity in terms of genetic makeup, but they're looking for sameness in that genetic makeup because they're actually looking for people who are related to them. And so uh, we are naturally meant to, on a pheromonal level, a smell hormone type level, it's really unique. I have a whole episode on this. I'll link to it in the episode notes of pheromones. But basically, normally, we would look for someone who's genetically different to bring about the healthiest type of offspring, the healthiest baby, so that we don't have similar things that we're bringing to the table uh, medically that we're predisposed to. There was also a really interesting study having to do with t-shirts and different types of uh, Mm -hmm. men that women are interested in based on their pheromones. And again, people who maybe aren't necessarily as safe or as healthy for them. But here's the clincher. Whether you believe that, you know, it's a better person or a worse person, someone with higher testosterone, you know, all these different pieces of information that Dr. Caldwell, you're discussing, um, the mm-hmm. bottom line is, is when a woman comes off of birth control, her hormonal makeup, her pheromone makeup changes, and often women find they're no longer interested in the person they're married to or whom right. they've been in a relationship with. And that's very significant, especially when people find themselves pregnant or married. So this is such an important topic. And Dr. Caldwell, we have so many questions coming in, uh, a lot of longer form questions among many others. Uh, let's start with Okay, we'll have, well, we have time for about two questions today. The first one I want to briefly touch on in the time we have Mary Rose email, and she said the most commonly used form of contraception in the United States is actually female sterilization. Uh, studies from the CDC point to one in five women in their 30s and two in five women in their 40s actually go through with tubal ligation. Why is this bad medically for women's bodies, Dr. Caldwell? Wow, that is such a good question. And it's, you're right, it is so common that women are actually pressured to have some mm. sort of a, you know, a permanent uh, birth control after they deliver a baby, which is terrible. But anyway, it's um, so tubal ligation um, often results later in in a uh, post tubal ligation syndrome. So very commonly, I think somewhere above fifty percent of the time after a tubal ligation women will begin to have extremely heavy periods. And of course, what happens when, you know, a woman has extremely heavy periods, um, many times um, she's then offered birth control or she's offered, and this just generally happens, she's just offered a hysterectomy, which is just not not good and really should be prevented if at all possible. So. Um, yeah, it, and then, you know, of course, it increases the risk sometimes of ectopic pregnancy um, for women who have had tubal, like tubal surgeries. So um, those that's the biggest one that I see every, you know, on a very common day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. Can you, so just to kind of summarize so I understand, so women are being pressured, obviously, to go through with a tubal ligation today because of its effectiveness, yet it seriously increases your risk of ectopic tubal pregnancy that's life-threatening to the mother. Uh, in addition to the fact that the medical fallout, you mentioned heavy bleeding, among other things, leads women to a follow-up operation of a hysterectomy. Now, why is a hysterectomy bad for a woman? Well, she no longer can, she no, doesn't know her hormones anymore. She's very confused. She can't track her cycle. She doesn't know when she's ovulating anymore. And so it it really just, she's disconnected from her cycle, which in a normal way, you know, really helps a woman to be in touch with her own body. Um, And um, yeah, and then later it can cause problems with her urinary system, incontinence and um, different, 
yeah, it's just, it's, we need our parts and it's good to have our parts working well. You know? And we need our hormones, even if they're challenging, yes. even if we're a different hormonal makeup every single yes. day in the month. Dr. Caldwell, can you stay with us? We have so many questions coming in and I would love to address some of those. Sure. Okay, we'll be right back here on Trending with Dr. Susan Caldwell. And if you joined us, uh, please be sure to uh, know that we are so grateful for your support of us here at Relevant Radio. We reached our goal of $3 million to cover just basic operating costs here. But we want to buy six new stations to impact the world through the media. So if you'd like to donate, relevantradio.com is the easiest way or 1-877-291-0123. You're listening to Trending with Timry, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to Trending. Joining me today is Dr. Susan Caldwell. She's a medical physician, a natural physician specializing in women's health and fertility. And she so generously agreed to come on and stay with us for so many questions that have come on. Um, really, there seems to be a theme, Dr. Caldwell, regarding endometriosis. Zach's on the line. Bliss is on the line. Two incredible uh, husbands and men who are concerned about women and women's health. Um, let's go ahead and jump through a bunch of these hoops with regard to endometriosis. First, uh, Zach from Texas said, my wife has stage four endometriosis. Uh, what could a woman do to test for levels of copper and mercury? So, yeah, I would find a functional medicine practitioner. So the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM, has a database on their website. Uh, and, and really, any of those doctors um, can do that. There are many testing centers. I don't know if there's any that you, there may be some that you can do at home. Um, nowadays, uh, there are a lot of home tests. So you might Google to see if there are any home tests for um, heavy metals to test mm -hmm. for that could there could be but otherwise generally it's a functional medicine doctor that you would have to find excellent and some napper physicians do test for heavy metals as mm -hmm. well or do i think heavy metal detoxes as well but yeah. i'll post a link to ifm.org because that's a great resource okay two more questions i really want to get through bliss is on line two and bliss welcome to trending what's your question today for dr caldwell Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to speak to um, women who have endometriosis and have gone through really severe periods of bleeding, um, infertility, secondary infertility, and really have gotten to the point where there is no other option um, besides an IUD as a practicing Catholic and someone who had the IUD placed um, before I had children. And I was seeing a functional doctor as well as a Catholic-based practitioner. Um, my Catholic-based practitioner actually sent me to a functional doctor to get the IUD because there wasn't anything else I could have done. So I guess I just wanted to speak to the women who may also be in that situation who kind of, I think, in, in conversations like this, tend to feel a little bit ostracized for their health. So yeah. thanks for taking my call. Yeah, if you could comment, Dr. Caldwell. Wow. Wow. I have actually never heard of that happening. Um, I would ask, I would, you know, just wonder if she, you know, not all NAPRO doctors are the same. Um, so NAPRO doctors fall into a variety of um, categories. And so for someone with 
severe endometriosis, um, I have never heard about a NAPRO doctor recommending an IUD because they're such good surgical approaches to endometriosis. Um, so I would just want to make sure that that um, someone like Bliss or, or someone she knows, you know, so whoever she was talking about, would make sure that um, they reach out to the Pope Paul VI or the St. Paul VI Institute um, and, and really make sure that they're looking for, looking at a NAPRO trained, fellowship trained doctor. So did you say she was in Texas? Did, did you say where she was from? I don't Let's remember. Let's see. Bliss. Zach was from Texas. Was asking okay. for his wife. I'm looking for Bliss. Uh, Bliss, Wisconsin. She's in Wisconsin. Okay. Um, off the top of my head, I don't have an, uh, anybody in there, in there. But I would I would ask that she, whoever was it would would have, be in that same situation yeah. Yeah. would reach out to the St. Paul the Six Institute yes. with that we'll question to say yep. to say who is. Like what doctor around me would be the highest level surgically trained NAPRO doctor? Right. So for example, I'm a NAPRO doctor and I, you know, if, if I didn't know better, you know, I'm, I could see myself saying, okay, oh, go maybe go to the local somebody and get an IUD because that's the best we can do. But that's just not the best we could do like in, in, in the national sense of things. Mm -hmm. But maybe in a local, you know, in maybe an emergency setting, that might be kind of a, a a temporary solution, but it certainly would not be the final step. So, right. and my hope, bliss as well, would be that you know physicians would help in finding other solutions. And this is why NAPRO is really one of a kind. I know no one out there who is treating endometriosis the way NAPRO physicians are today. So I would highly recommend right. consulting with NAPRO physician. We post a link to Popol 6 Institute and links for finding NAPRO physicians as well to consult. And I would recommend actually getting a second opinion uh, because of yeah. how yeah. Uh, damaging an IUD is. Correct, Dr. Caldwell? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah, um, you, you just want to go to the highest you know, kind of level of consultation. And again, um, it would it would need to be a NAPRO surgeon who is fellowship trained at the Pope Paul VI Institute. That's where you're gonna find mm -hmm. that type of surgeon. Yeah. Fantastic. And, she, and these are one of the kind that specialize in it. We have a NAPRO surgeon near us, praise God. We are so grateful um, to have access. And I have friends with endometriosis and they came across NAPRO because there were no other holistic solutions that actually treated endometriosis rather than putting a Band-Aid on it. Okay, Dr. Caldwell, we have another question I think is such an important question. You know, again, navigating these difficult issues. Uh, Tabby wrote in, she said, I, had my first I have my first appointment with a NAPRO doctor a month from now. She said, I need advice on what to do in the meantime, I'm currently experiencing six weeks of heavy bleeding, fatigue, constant urination, and lots of pressure in my abdomen. She said, my insurance does not cover NAPRO, but she's going to go to a NAPRO doctor anyways. So she's tried to exhaust all research sources under her coverage at Kaiser first to take results to her NAPRO doctor. She said, mm -hmm. every time at Kaiser, I see a different doctor with different advice and no diagnoses. She said, among other tests, I've had an ultrasound and some of the findings include polyps, benign cervix biopsy, a left ovary cyst, endometrial stripes of 25, I think that's millimeters, and complex fluids in the uterus. Mm -hmm. I've been shamed by my physicians for denying birth control, and therefore they claim I'm denying medical care. She said, I'm nervous regarding what to do in the meantime. She said, I've, only, I've been told by Kaiser physicians to take Lester to stop the bleeding and then a type of progesterone to completely stop the bleeding. So I'm not confident in this choice or the timing of when to take things. Do you have any advice 
in the meantime while I wait to see a napro doctor next month. Wow, that's just um, so sad, first of all. Um, okay, um, so it sounds like that you've gotten a good Evalu a good, very basic rather evaluation. Um, I'm, I'm most concerned actually about the thick lining. Um, so, you know, I, I hope they've done a, a pap smear or an endometrial biopsy to rule out, you know, some early cancer cells in that thick lining. Um, and so that's actually part of the concern. And I don't think there's yeah. a biopsy yet. Yeah. And, and so I just, I'm, I'm thinking if they would be open to giving you cyclic progesterone, um, maybe you could ask for the Prometrium brand, um, or it's otherwise known as Micronized Progesterone. You'd want to stay far away from something called Medroxy Progesterone or Provera. What about Magestral? I don't know what that is. Magestral? Yeah, that was what I'm looking at the notes. Magestral is a progesterone that she was recommended. Um, I guess I would have to see. I don't see it in my in what, the, what I have. Okay, but what would you recommend? So if she's being told so, you progesterone, so, what types would they do? Right, so micronized progesterone, and the other name for that is Prometrium. So it, it is going to always be a jelly type of capsule. Like it looks like a football, shaped like a football, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's kind of a gelatin capsule. It is not a tablet, and that's kind of the unique thing. So it's pro, called Prometrium is the brand name. The generic is micronized progesterone, um, and it would be taken... Um, you could take it cycle day 18 to 27 by mouth, 200 milligrams. Um, there are different dosages um, depending on, you know, I have, I have people on many, many different dosages, so I don't know enough to say, and of course I can't give exact medical advice because I'm not her treating doctor. And I'd also make sure that she's taking iron every day because mm -hmm. she may be anemic with all that bleeding. Um, mm -hmm. And then I would wonder if she had ruled out, you know, a urinary tract infection. Um, does she need to see a, a urinary specialist? Um, that's concerning um, as well. Uh, yeah, and then the, just to mention the Lysteta, that's a pretty good um, recommendation in the meantime because it just helps to lighten bleeding by causing the blood to clot to be thicker um, and it lessens the flow of blood. And so that, is, um, that may be kind of helpful until we can get to the root cause. Okay, so it sounds like the recommendation right now works, but you just need to address what the progesterone is, work on having a biopsy done concerning possible cancer, uh, and yes. also um, checking for a urinary tract infection at the same time. Is that it? Yes. Yeah, so it sounds like just this is a case of someone who, you know, it's just has gotten to a point now where she's just sick, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we need just uh, somebody who will really take her from this this really Ill, this illness that she's having um, and then can with NAPRO can kind of restore uh, to help her to get to just regular cycles again and regular bleeding. And that's what's mm -hmm. that's what's so hopeful about her seeing a NAPRO doctor. May I ask a question about progesterone? So you mentioned taking progesterone, and you said what type already, and if you need to go back and listen to the podcast, it will mm -hmm. be available tonight, Tabby. Uh, but you said cycle day 18 to 27. Obviously, with the bleeding for so long, yeah. she wouldn't necessarily know where she was at. So what would the recommendation yeah. be for taking mm -hmm. progesterone then? So what I normally, I mean, again, I just, I, you know, I hate to give exact medical advice, but if this was my patient, um, I generally would give, 300 milligrams of progesterone for for a solid month for 30 days yeah okay. 
Um, so generally, but, I, but usually with people like this, I would I would be very closely communicating with them about their bleeding to let me know mm -hmm. how the treatment's going. Um, yeah, we would need to be really um, keeping in close connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So staying in close communication along the way with her physicians is very important. So she waits to see the NAPRO physician. Absolutely. Thank you for answering these questions. So many people are asking questions about endometriosis today. I'm actually going to link to an episode where Dr. Caldwell, you and I work through um, how NAPRO physicians help people who are experiencing endometriosis with real solutions and treatment rather than solutions such as seemingly an IUD or hormonal contraception and bad forms of progesterone. So I'll link to that episode as well because I know there are a lot more fertility questions even regarding PCOS, and we can't get to all of them today. That's been Dr. Susan Caldwell here on Trending. You can find her online, her website. I'll link on the episode notes as well, but you can find her at drsusancaldwell.com. That's drsusan, C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L.com. Thank you so much for everything you're doing, Dr. Caldwell. I'll be right back here on Trending. Changing lives in your neighborhood and across the nation. Here's another relevant radio miracle moment. Lois, welcome to The Inner Life. We've been married 40 years. Um, I'm a Baptist. He's a Catholic. And we lived in Arizona to start, and I moved here to uh, Michigan, and I started listening to relevant radio. And what's happening is I'm converting because I believe it's important to go to church with the person you love. And I'm trying to get through RCA, but it snows here, and then I don't make it. <laughs> I'm on my third shot. I'm going to try. <laughs> but we go to church together. I don't take communion, and I want the communion the way it's supposed to be, and I want to do confession. So for those people out there, just keep doing it. Join. Join your mate. See what happens. Listen to relevant radio. God will change your heart. Touch a heart and change a soul by making a donation to Relevant Radio today. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Happy almost Mother's Day to all of the mothers listening now. Thank you for your yes to life in a culture where, unfortunately, legally, there's a choice not to have children, or should I say, to end the lives of children. So thank you for that. And for any women who are hurting or any women you might know who are hurting from the wound of abortion, we're posting a link on social media for you to get access to um, post-abortion healing. Um, if we, you know, help women who are struggling from that post-abortion healing, it can go a long ways in preventing future abortions, but also helping that woman to heal uh, from the aftermath of abortion and post-abortion syndrome, because that is very, very significant for many women. And I can't help but think of it every time we are here uh, on Trending as we celebrate Mother's Day and the reality of broken motherhood in today's world. And how the antithesis today of womanhood, the antithesis of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is that perfect woman, is being attacked. Today, we're told it's bad to be a virgin. It's bad to be a mother. All of these things that are the opposite of the gentleness, kindness, and meekness, and generosity of Our Lady. And that's what people say is the right type of womanhood today. And 
as we talk about that, I find it so fitting that this year, Mother's Day, falls just a day after a great feast day of Our Lady of Fatima, which is tomorrow. Here we celebrate that May 13th. And I've been reading from the writings of Sister Lucia, one of the three visionaries, and her writings are so poignant. I've been reading some of her letters as well as her first memoir over the last couple of days. And the first memoir written by uh, Sister Lucia is about Saint, now Saint Jacinta, one of the younger of the three visionaries and the cousin to Sister Lucia. And I want to talk a little bit about what's said there. Uh, but before I do, just a, a really profound comment. And one of the letters of Sister Lucia to her superior back in 1941, some years after the miracle of the sun and all of the visions that they had of Our Lady, uh, there Sister Lucia in this letter to her superior says, with regard to people who have devotion to Our Lady and entrust themselves to Our Lady, she said, in moments of greatest necessity, of tribulation and abandon, this heart of our mother keeps watch over you, accompanies you, and protects you. I found those words so comforting, especially coming from Sister Lucia, who had such an intimate relationship with Our Lady from such a young age. She learned that total abandonment, that simplicity of trust. And when you consecrate and you take yourself to Christ through the intercession of Our Lady, that Our Lady truly does watch over you by her most holy intercession. Now, one of the resounding themes in the writings of St. Lucia and in the lives of Jacinta and her brother, uh, Francisco, what stands out to me most is how these little children... And I'll just repeat that again. Little children. I mean, we're talking about Jacinta was just seven years old. I think uh, Sister Lucia was about 10. I can't remember uh, how old um, Francesco, Francesco is. But I think that it's significant how young these three children were. And when you ponder what they were taught and how the central message of Fatima had to do with sacrificing for the salvation of souls. A sacrificing for the salvation of souls, and how significant that was in their lives as little children. And let's just talk a little bit about St. Jacinta, because this first memoir of Sister Lucia writing about Jacinta is very profound. She actually shares about how before the visions began that she had been talking to Jacinta. For some reason, Jacinta and Francisco uh, both really liked to follow Sister Lucia around. And what happened was at one point, uh, Jacinta ends up asking for Sister Lucia to tell her a story about our Lord's suffering. She had not heard it before. And in the words of Sister Lucia, she says, the little child, that is Jacinta, hearing the story of our Lord's suffering, was moved and wept. From that day on, she often asked to have it told to her again. She mourned with sorrow and said, Oh, our dear poor Lord, I'll never do any sin. I don't want our Lord to suffer anymore. This was a little girl of six, seven years old. 
how profound that is. And I was thinking about the reality of how it used to be through oral tradition, we would tell the stories of the passion of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, of the stories of Moses and David and Jonah, and how we need to reinvigorate within our families, within our homes, with among our children, the power of story. Look at how one young shepherdess, Sister Lucia, passed on the story of our Lord's suffering to Jacinta and the impact it had on this little girl from a young age. It was also interesting to me in reading the story how these three little children, prior to even receiving the vision of Our Lady of Fatima, how they already had a devotion that was fostered by Sister Lucia's mother to the infant Jesus. There's a story about Sister Lucia's mother actually correcting a child who said some really, really naughty words and commented that that offended and hurt the infant Jesus and that you should never do it again and never sin again by saying such things. And this really out to me because I think I might have shared with some of you uh, since the Christmas season uh, we still haven't put away our nativity set and the reason being is that my daughter in the final days of the Christmas season all of a sudden took the baby Jesus out of the nativity set and she has had him ever since then and we are going on about three months now of her carrying around baby Jesus everywhere we go to the grocery store to friends' houses, out to eat, throughout the house. And he's part of our nativity set, so he's kind of a big, plastic, hard baby Jesus. She insists on sleeping with him every now every night. I know the poor girl's rolling over him. It has to hurt, but we'll hear baby Jesus banging against the wall of her bedroom as she rolls over and knocks him against the wall. Uh, the worst and the best is when she makes her way to snuggling inside her bed, and she insists that baby Jesus come too, and then one of us roll over and... Uh, bump and very, very hard and stiff baby Jesus. Uh, but what stood out to me was that a devotion to the baby Jesus was fostered in the three young visionaries. And I know in many cultures, uh, the Filipino culture, the Hispanic culture, among others, there's been a devotion to the infant of Prague. But when we talk about the devotion to the infant Jesus, I think there's something special about young children. I'm witnessing this through my daughter's just receptivity to baby Jesus. She talks to him. I'll ask, it's fascinating, praise God. I'll ask her, what did you dream about, honey? And I don't know if she knows what a dream is or not, but she goes, baby Jesus, and she starts telling me these stories about baby Jesus. And when she says her prayers, I'll tell her, look to Jesus on the cross. And she understands that the two are the same. Uh, but she'll say, no, I'll pray to baby Jesus. And she cradles baby Jesus in her arms, and she says her morning and night prayers to him. To him. It's very, very precious. And I think that it's something to ponder in how we are passing on the faith to young children. Another thing that stood out to me in the memoir, the first memoir of Sister Lucia, when she's talking about St. Jacinta after her death in 19, I think 41 it was, she writes about how little Lucia, when she was about barely around seven-ish years old, kept saying that she wanted to go to receive Holy Communion. She would refer to the hidden Jesus in communion, and she would ask to be taught about the hidden Jesus, that is, the true presence of Jesus Christ behind the Eucharist. And Sister Lucia and others told her, when you're 10, you can go to communion. And, and little, you know, kind of, she's got a little bit of a tongue on her. Uh, St. Jacinta says that she was then asked 
basically that she be taught her catechism because she was told by Sister Lucia that you don't know all the things about the catechism that I do and that's why I'm not even 10 yet and I've already received Jesus in Holy Communion or as she referred to him in Hidden Communion because Jesus is hidden under the veil of bread and wine and it was something she was so enthusiastically interested in. And Sister Lucia chronicles all of these stories of the three little shepherds and how Sister Lucia would sit and teach them their catechism and how she realized there were a few things that she really did remember that she was taught, but there were a lot of things she didn't understand, she didn't remember. And so she'd have to learn and ask questions and ask her mother to help teach her. Another thing that stood out to me about these three young visionaries when we're talking about, you know, children, the formation of children, uh, little Lucia already had the responsibility before she was even 10 years old to actually pastor the flock of the family sheep. And also her young cousins, Jacinta and her brother, also ended up begging because they wanted to go out to pasture and continue to talk about God and also just do fun things as kids. Uh, they begged, even though they were too young, to pasture their flock and take the flock out to out to pasture. And so these three little children together would engage in all of these amusements. There's a story, actually, about the three young shepherd visionaries of Our Lady of Fatima. Uh, Sister Lucia says, One amusement we had was to sit at the mount's top on the biggest rock calling out names so we could hear the echo. These are three little kids under the age of 10. And one of their favorite names among others that they started to love to call out was Maria because of how it would sound echoing back to them. And so they would start actually hollering out the words of the whole Hail Mary, but they'd have to wait for the word to come back to them. They'd yell, Hail, and the word would come back to them. Mary, or of course, you know, they'd come back and over and over again, they'd go one word at a time waiting for the echo. She'd also talk about how the three of them would sing many songs, and Sister Lucia says, among them, many unholy ones, and unfortunately, we knew too many, but she said, Sister Jacinta always, Saint Jacinta always preferred, heal noble patron, most pure virgin, holy angels sing with me, and she mentions all of these songs, and again, was a reminder, are we teaching through story, through songs, uh, through devotion, these pure and beautiful things to children that I really do believe these three young shepherd shepherdesses and visionaries, that they had a devotion already to the Eucharist. They already had a devotion to the infant Jesus. They already knew basic under, basic things of their Catholic faith. They were desiring Jesus. They were singing about him. They had stories about him memorized, and they were telling one another, can our children do that? Are we passing along that oral tradition, the the tradition of song, of singing of Our Lady. It's the month of Our Lady. And this is a great month to you know, do a May crowning with our children. And I think that, you know, so much of what I read in the stories of St. Jacinta and Sister Lucia and Francisco, their stories stand out to me very profoundly. And finally, I'd just like to touch on the fact that these three young children under the age of 10 answering the call of Our Lady to pray and fast and make sacrifices for the salvation of souls. Our Lady went so far as to even give them a vision of hell and of young peers of theirs who were in hell who had died. They would do things such as not eating their sandwiches when they go out to pasture the sheep. They would refuse to drink water for a full day at a time. These little children who were capable of such loving sacrifice out of the call of Our Lady. 
So until I join you again tomorrow, I pray that we will strive to make sacrifices for the salvation of souls as Our Lady invited us to in the celebration of Our Lady of Fatima as these three young children were able to answer that call without impediments getting in the way as we so often make so many excuses.